Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Abby Ross, joined today by Dr. Danny Tate and Dr. Kelly Keener, as well as our guest, Dr. Jeff Walter. Today, he's going to talk to us a little bit about his newly published article. But first, Jeff, if you don't mind introducing yourself. Sure. Thanks, Abby. Happy to be here with uh, Danny and Kelly also. I'm a physical therapist. I work at a balance center uh, in central Pennsylvania at Geisinger Medical Center within an otolaryngology department. I work primarily with three ENTs that have a special interest in otology. And then I work with a group of audiologists and another uh, physical therapist at our center. And I see patients that have dizziness or balance problems all day, every day. And Kelly and I were fortunate enough to be your students on clinical rotations when we were studying at Misericordia University. So we got to uh, make it through a 10 grueling weeks with you, Um, but it has ultimately made us into the vestibuloholics that we are. And everybody has loved your previous two episodes. So we're so, so excited to have you back, especially to talk about this article. Um, I have been hounding you for months and months and months about when this was going to be published. Yes. Because both of us were students with you while you were looking into this and um, going through the process of getting this worked on and, and, and published. So first, um, why don't you talk about the subject of the study and kind of the background behind it all? Sure. I just had learned from clinical experience, and I didn't really understand why at first, but I just learned that when you do Dick's Hall Pike testing for BPPV, when I had cases where it seemed like I expected them to have it, and then you test them and they didn't seem to have it, that sometimes it seemed the test was more sensitive. If after turning the head, when they're in a long sitting position, if we flex the head forward and waited a little bit and then brought them back into a Dick's Hall Pike, it seemed to elicit, uh, more likely elicit nystagmus. And if it did, it seemed stronger. So I didn't exactly understand why, uh, but I started doing it. And then an article came out and really, I would encourage you before you read my article, if you can get your hands on a paper by Baselli, B-O-S-E-L-L-I. It was published, I believe in 2014 or 15. And it's, the paper's a little geeky, but the main take home message from the paper was that in subjects with posterior canal BPPV, he really mapped out the mechanism for what we call fatigability. Like when you test a patient consecutively with posterior canal BPV, the response can fade a little bit. And what he demonstrated with modeling was um, at the base of your posterior canal, you have to appreciate that the base of the posterior canal is fairly flat and parallel with the ground. And debris can reside. Remember the cupula sits near the utricle. So the ampulated ending sits near the utricle. And debris can reside, before you test somebody, they're upright in a long sitting position. It can reside anywhere along this base, probably depending on what your patient did before you you saw them. So for example, if they were short and watching a TV overhead, that would place the debris more likely towards a further away from the ampulating ending of the canal versus if they had bent forward to tie their shoes, the debris could be shuffled a little bit closer to the ampulated ending of the canal. And so what he demonstrated as a mechanism for fatigue for BPPV, which I believe in strongly that this is the mechanism for fatigue, 
is that when you drop a patient back with their first test, the debris drops, but when you sit them back up after that first test, the debris only settles here and not back to where it may have started. So you go to, you go to do your second test and now the phenomena is reduced because the distance the debris traveled is substantially less and it had less of a time to travel at its maximal velocity. So he really did a nice job of demonstrating that from a modeling perspective, that's likely why BPPV fatigues. If you go back 10 years, a popular theory was that the debris was dispersing within the canal um, or getting caught along the margins of the canal. And that's really been fairly well disproven. And so this seemed to be the mechanism for why the response can decrease. So if you take it, if you take that work and you know, utilize it to increase sensitivity with testing, the thought was if we make sure the debris is near the ampulated ending of the canal, would that enhance the sensitivity of testing? So this really dovetails off Baselli's work, um, the background behind why we did it. So I knew it worked from clinical experience, and then I read that study, I'm like, ah, oh, that's why it's more sensitive when we do that. So now I should probably take the time to try to prove it because this condition is so common and I think it's still under-recognized. And especially for novice clinicians, if you can make it more likely to be positive and if you can create stronger nystagmus that lasts a longer duration, it's to their benefit. So I felt like it was worthy of a clinical study. And so that's what we did at our center. So Jeff, if you could, for our listeners, well, first I want to say, if you have access to YouTube, please watch this on YouTube as Jeff just gave a really great visual and I'm sure the visuals will continue to come. But Jeff, if you could tell us, describe to us how we actually perform a loaded Dix-Hall pike test. Sure. So your patient would be in long sitting. All right. You would turn ahead 45 degrees, just like you would for your traditional Dix-Hall pike test. So the, the difference is, and in the study, this is how we performed the test. We, you have them turn 45 degrees and then just tip them forward 30 degrees. So it's just a movement right in the plant. Like right now my head's rotated left. I keep that left 45 degrees of rotation. And now I just lean, you can either have the patient lean forward or have them flex their head forward. As long as you're tipping that canal forward 30 degrees. I actually found from tooling around that if you do more than that, that it may decrease the sensitivity of the test. Hmm. So I wouldn't recommend doing more than that. And then we waited 30 seconds. So they turn 45, you flex 30, and you wait 30 seconds because, again, you're waiting then for the debris to settle towards the ampulated ending of the canal. If you have video goggles, you may occasionally see that when you do that, patients get a little bit of inhibitory nystagmus from the canal because the debris is migrating towards the cupula, and that creates utriculo, what we call utriculopedal displacement of the cupula, which creates the inhibitory eye movement from the canal. So remember, I think most listeners know we do a Dix-Hall pike. For example, for the left side, you see upbeat left torsion in a burst. That's the excitatory nystagmus. When we do a loaded Dix-Hall pike, that first phase, sometimes you get a little what we call reversal, which would be, in the case of the left side, downbeat, right torsion. And often the patient feels a little vertiginous or unsteady when you do this loading phase. So we call that, we call it the loaded Dix-Hall pike because I thought it, it captured the concept well that we're trying to load the debris towards the cupula. 
Um, and then from there, there's no difference. Um, we, we have the debris loaded. The terminal position, the dependent position is no different than your traditional Dix Hall pike. So it's just the initial phase that's different. It's the loading that's different. But the terminal phase, the ear dependent phase is absolutely no different. So, you know, you, you keep that 45 degrees rotation, they lie supine and you tip their head back 20 degrees past horizontal. Jeff, do you ever notice, so when you do load somebody and you um, see that reversal of nystagmus in the beginning, do you tend to see that those patients have a stronger response when you do like have them back in the hall pike or not necessarily? That's a good question. I think it's, it indicates you're going to see something when you do a Dick's hall pike. I don't know if I pieced it together yet that it's stronger, but I think that that's a pretty sensitive finding that you're going to very, very likely see something when you drop them back. But that's a good question, Kelly. I'm not sure if it indicates that it's going to be stronger or not. Probably, but I don't know for sure. But it increases the likelihood of a positive test. Okay. So, Jeff, when we talk about the importance of, you know, why we want to elicit this response, we think it's BPPV. Maybe we didn't get a, a response in standard Dix-Hulpike. I'm just reading directly from a line in the study here. It's estimated that it costs approximately $2,000 to arrive at the diagnosis of BPPV, and that more than 65% of patients with this condition will undergo potentially unnecessary diagnostic testing or therapeutic interventions. Wow, that surprised me. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's so underappreciated and it's frustrating. I mean, if a geriatric individual goes in for a physical, just a, an annual physical, what's done for their ear? Typically, they'll take a scope and they'll check them for deadly cerumen, <laughs> all right, because heaven forbid you'd have some cerumen in your ear, which plays a role in fighting off bacteria. So there's a purpose to having cerumen, but we're in a big hurry to get rid of it because of its uh, association with a terrible decline in your ADLs. Um, so I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> so... Um, it's frustrating to me that I think if you're, for example, 70 or 80 or older, it, I, the physician's time would be better spent doing at least a sideline test to screen for BPPV if you're going to do something for the ear. So I think any work we can do to help, help clinicians identify the disorder, I think, is a step in the right direction. And Jeff, even from like the emergency medicine standpoint, like if a patient goes into the ER, it's acutely dizzy. How many times, how often does a halt pike get uh, performed? Yeah, there's a study that suggested it was about 9%. Oh, so like a 1 in 10 chance in patients with positional vertigo. And what's interesting is often the diagnosis of BPPV is reached in the, in the, in the uh, you know, clinical judgment section of, a, of an ER note and no positioning test was done. So yeah. they apparently have advanced technology there where they can actually <laughs> scan otoconia moving within the canal without doing positioning tests. But it's interesting that the diagnosis is often reached without ever having a positioning test done just based on listening to the patient. Um, often there's even conflicting information. For example, I read ER notes all the time where a patient supposedly had spontaneous nystagmus during their exam, and then you go down to the assessment section and the thought is they have BPPV. So there's incongruency between what the test results are that are reported and the judgment that's made upon them. And that's assuming that they even come to that diagnosis. A lot of patients come out with a diagnosis, quote unquote, of vertigo. And they're right. getting that. Yeah. I would say that, Dan. Yeah. yeah. So I have a lot of patients that come in and say, I have vertigo. And I say, okay, well, we got to break that down a little bit because 
vertigo is like knee pain. There's a lot of different types of knee pain and what caused the knee pain. Yeah. So it's, it's frustrating for sure. Yeah, I agree. So Jeff, how did you set up this study and talk to us a little bit about your methods? Sure. So what we did was in, when we had a subject that sounded like they had a history consistent with BPPV, I went over the study consent with them. So it was IRB approved. Um, and what this, the study involved was the patient consenting to complete six rounds of Dick's Hall pipe testing. And so in half the subjects, so we alternated the order. So subjects, the odd number subjects, um, I forget which group went with which, but anyhow, there was an even number of subjects that had three traditional Dix Hall Pikes done, followed by three loaded Dix Hall Pikes. And then the other half of the subjects did the exact opposite. They had three loaded and then three traditional Dix Hall Pikes done because we wanted to make sure that the order of testing had no effect on our test results. Uh, patients were excluded from the study if they had spontaneous nystagmus, if they had, this was only a test on posterior canal canalithiasis. So if they had unilateral, so if they had multi-canal BPPV or if they had horizontal canal BPV, they were thrown out. Um, if they had postural limitations where we couldn't hit our angles with the test, they were thrown out. If they had a history of emesis production with their symptoms before coming in, we didn't even ask them to participate because we were worried about making them sick. Um, those were the primary exclusion criteria, but it basically consisted of six rounds of Dick's Hall Pike testing to the affected side. They were only included in the study if they at some point in those six tests demonstrated that they had eye movements that supported it. So we had a couple subjects where their history was strong for BPPV and they consented to the study, but all six tests on both sides were negative. Well, they were tossed because we couldn't be sure they had BPPV. So again, this was just for unilateral posterior canal canalithiasis. And it was three tests that were blocked, either loaded and then standard or standard and then loaded. We had an equal number in each group and there was 14 in each group. So it was 28 subjects altogether. So let me just clarify something. Um, when, at what point did you determine that it was either cupulothiasis or a different canal involved? You started with your loaded and standard testing, correct? Right. So for example, if during Dick's Hall Pike testing, we saw that they had torsional nystagmus that would not stop and we did a half Dick's Hall Pike and that increased it. That would that would imply that they likely have cupulolithiasis and they were excluded from the study. So we wouldn't. I don't know if that happened, but we would have excluded that sort of scenario from the study. If we did a Dix Hall Pike and saw geotropic nystagmus, and they had horizontal canal BPV, they're excluded from the study. It was just posterior canal BPPV only. Um, I think one potential limitation of the study is patients with severe BPPV or high anxiety opted out once they heard the study design. So when I reviewed it with them, I think we probably, and it might be a strength of the study, it's probably a little biased towards milder BPPV, um, but it was probably more of the patient's personality type because I, there were some patients in the study that had real strong rip-roaring BPPV, but they were just pretty insensitive to it. So they were, they handled the study protocol well. 
balancing um, with the with having uh, the approach of more milder cases, I think that kind of strengthens your findings of the study then because we're looking at the sensitivity of the test in general. Right. So if you have these patients that could have been ones that were potentially missed, that only strengthens the data that you guys came up with. Right. I think if you looked at our study, we didn't look at this formally, but I think our study population would have been easier to miss than the patients who opted out. Mm -hmm. in general, because they had stronger BPPV, but we didn't really formally look at that. So I, I have to reserve some commentary on that. After all this, I, I tested every patient and recorded eye movements with every patient. It was done with video goggles, micro, micro medical monocular goggles with fixation, with the patient attempting to maintain primary gaze. That means gaze straight ahead during their test. So I give them a visual target to maintain primary gaze during the test. So the, the data was collected with fixation present with infrared video goggles. And each test was video recorded. And then after we compiled, so we had, I think if my math's right, 168 Dix Hall Pikes to go through. Um, Luke Andera, who's a co-author on the study, he was a resident in our department. Him and I sat down and in, in a blinded manner, we reviewed the videos so when we reviewed the videos, we didn't know if they had a standard or loaded Dix Hall Pike testing done. Actually, my secretary came back and she picked various videos in a randomized order and threw them up on the screen. And we didn't know which one she was choosing. So we were blinded to that. And so we looked at the following features. How long of a latency was there until it kicked in? What was the duration of the nystagmus? So we both judged when it started and when it ended. Um, I mean, we would argue down to the second to try to have the, the duration as accurate as possible. And what was another thing that was compiled during the study was the patient, when they were tested, rated the experience, each Dix Hall Pike, on a scale of zero to 10. How symptomatic were you with this test? And so the patient would provide that response with each test. So we kept track of the patient's perception of how strong their symptoms were with loaded Dix Hall Pike testing versus standard testing. So that's what was collected and reviewed in a, bl in a blinded manner then after the study was the, the duration and the latency, how long the latency was with each test. Mm -hmm. I wanna go back to one thing we were talking about briefly before when it comes to, you suspect these might've been milder cases, but when you say milder cases, you're strictly talking about patients subjective report of symptoms that is what we had to rely upon because we were just in the history section we hadn't done any testing on the patients and when i went through consent patients in just as a general feature was if they had real strong bppv when i explained the study protocol to them they were more likely to say no thank you mm -hmm. <laughs> you just didn't want to go through that which i understood um, so I just think there may have been more patients in that group that had stronger BPPV, but we didn't formally assess that. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that is that sometimes you'll see really strong, intense nystagmus, but like you said, the patient's pretty confident. Absolutely. Yeah. We talked about that during the study, uh, Dr. Andara and I, that Boy, another study should be, there's such a weak correlation between strength of nystagmus and how how strong the symptoms were for the patient. But So literally, we're reviewing the data, and we would look at a video of a Dix Hall Pike, and we put a patient back 
and they had a latency, and this is what we saw, bloop, 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 and it stopped, and it was like three seconds. And we, I, on the video, you could hear me ask the patient, on a scale of zero to 10, how severe was that? Oh, that was a nine or 10. And then we'd have other patients we put back and it's like a barn fire, you know, and you'd ask them after it was done, well, how severe was that? And you'd ask, a, you know, a different patient with stronger, B, what, what looks like objectively stronger BBD, how severe it was. And they were like, I don't know. I'd rather say that was a two, you know, like <laughs> you barely woke them up. Yeah. So it was interesting. One additional uh, item with the methods is, is that we had 16 females and 12 males, and the average age of the participants was 59.6, so basically 60 years of age with the methods. Nice. So why don't you share with us the results of the study? Sure. A um, couple things from the study. If we looked at all subjects, what the sensitivity of a standard Dix Hall Pike was, um, a way you can look at it is you had about a 18% false negative rate. So when you do standard test, these are patients that we all we know had it, had the disorder because at multiple points during their six testing trials, they demonstrated it to us. So you could kind of extrapolate from that that there was an almost one in five chance of getting a false negative with standard Dix-Hall-Pike testing. When we did loaded testing, it was below 5%. It was 4.8. So you cut that down in a third. And there's other literature that suggests that Dick's Hallpike done standardly has a sensitivity around 80%. So that was consistent with other literature regarding sensitivity of the Dick's Hallpike. Um, and that was P level 0 0.01, that when you did loaded testing, it was more sensitive than standard testing. So that's one of the take home messages from the test. Another, just some other, I think, important teaching points were that when we did standard testing, um, there were two subjects that never showed it to us. So when we did three standard tests in a row, they didn't demonstrate it to us at all and only demonstrated it during loaded testing. So those are subjects you would have missed if you never did a loaded Dix-Hallpike. With loaded Dix-Hallpike testing, we never had two consecutive false negatives. So that would be, if again, if you look at our data, you could probably, a take home message from that would be, if I do two loaded Dix Hall Pikes and they're negative, there's a very low probability I'm missing a patient with posterior canal BPPV. So I think that's another important take home message. So in our study group uh, of 28 patients, the sensitivity of the Dix Hall Pike the loaded Dix Hall Pike was 100% if you did two consecutive trials. We didn't miss anybody when we did two trials. We didn't even need to do three. Um, duration of show, so duration of nystagmus uh, when you elicit it, was substantially larger with loaded Dix Hall Pike testing, about 50% longer. Um, so it averaged about uh, 8.1 seconds with standard testing. And that bumped up to close to 13 seconds with loaded testing. I think that's really helpful too for the novice clinician because it gives you longer to see the eye movement. And I think we all know from experience a common reaction a lot of patients have when you do a test is to clench their eyes shut. So it may take you three to five seconds to get somebody to open their eyes. All right. So it just gives you longer to see the nystagmus. And that was um, that was 56.5% longer with with uh, 
the loaded testing. And that was P-level point zero, 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 one, that the duration was substantially, significantly longer with the loaded testing. Uh, how did patients feel about it? Their severity of symptoms. So what they reported they experienced was substantially stronger with loaded testing. Um, and that and what's, was- What's the rule again, Jeff, for patient's comfort? Well, if you want to get a diagnosis, their comfort's your secondary concern. Exactly. <laughs> and you talked, about being a you talked about being a student with me earlier. Your comfort sometimes was my secondary concern too, because <laughs> I wanted you to learn. If you have an entire day on a clinical internship as a student, if there's any students listening and you don't feel uncomfortable at all, you're probably at a waste of time internship in my opinion. So like you should feel uncomfortable every day. I still feel uncomfortable sometimes. And I think that that means that you're challenging yourself or growing. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. We can definitely attest that our comfort was his secondary concern. So, <laughs> <laughs> <Sometimes> tertiary. <laughs> but you survived. We survived. We're here to tell That's right. <laughs> you're stronger humans because of it. Uh, so severity of symptoms was substantially higher with loaded testing 0.0001 uh, P level. Now that could be looked at in a positive or negative way. So, I mean, I think it to keep in mind, if you have somebody that's kind of a sensory sissy and doesn't tolerate their symptoms well, or has a history of emesis production, honestly, you might not want to do a loaded Dix-Hall-Pike test with them. Because if you can make the diagnosis with the standard test, according to our data, their symptoms would be less. So it'd be a little more comfortable for them to go through it. But if you want efficiency, like if you want to reach the diagnosis quickly, then you might want to do the loaded testing. So I there are occasions where I don't do loaded testing when I have a patient who I have to plead with to test because they don't want to be tested or they have a history of producing emesis. I don't do a loaded test on those patients and I wouldn't suggest doing it. Um, but most of the time, it's 80, 90% of the time I do a loaded test and I feel like the patient can handle it. I like that distinction because you're using your clinical um, thinking, you're using yeah. your clinical hat. When you put something out like this, you're not saying that this is now the new way to do it. You're not claiming that this is the only best way. You're simply putting some data out there for clinicians to be able to take back and make a good clinical decision with. You know, when this first got published, I, I was tracking some of the things that people were saying on Twitter and social media about it. And some clinicians just get so uppity to be like, well, I'm not gonna do this. And I, can't, I don't understand why. And, you know, they get really kind of behind fighting against some new way of approaching something that has become just a standard way of testing. But you're not saying that this is the only way to do it or the best way, that we are just finding a way to decrease these potential false negatives to make it a little mm -hmm. bit more easily identifiable. But you still need to make that decision as a clinician when to apply it, when not to apply it. You know, there's not a correct yeah. situation, you know, every single time. The other potential negative is it takes 30 more seconds. So that's another negative. I don't think that's a lot of time, but it is a, just a consideration. It does take 30 more seconds because you have to do that loading phase. Does it have to be 30? Probably not. Probably 20 seconds is enough. But in our study, we did 30. So if you want to do what we did in the study, we do 30. There is so, one. Oh, sorry, Abby, go ahead. Okay, no problem. Uh, two things. We've all had those patients that sound like BPPB and we don't elicit the response. So obviously you're going to go for a loaded in those patients. But when you are making your clinical decision to 
perform loaded or standard, are you starting off with loaded or are you still doing standard and then moving to loaded? I'm, al I'm almost always doing loaded unless they, again, have a history of being sensory intolerant um, or real, real anxious. Mm -hmm. But I'm, doing, I'm starting off with standard. With I'm starting out with the loaded Dixalpike with patients typically. So I had a patient the other day who I tried the loaded Dix Hall Pike on because in standard Dix Hall Pike, I was not eliciting any nystagmus. She was having mild symptoms, but not the symptoms that she was um, explaining to me. So I tried the loaded Dix Hall Pike. Symptom wise, the intensity increased, but I still did not elicit nystagmus. So my question to you, Jeff, is would you go through with a maneuver in that case? And did you see during your study any situations where nystagmus wasn't um, present, but they still reported symptoms? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm glad we're touching on this. What was interesting in our study, again, these are subjects we know have poster canal BPD because they're failing some of their tests. But even on trials where nystagmus was not elicited, it wasn't uncommon that patients still complained that they became symptomatic. So even though there was no nystagmus, they would still on a scale of zero to 10 offer a two or a three that they felt dizzy during the test. So I think it supports the notion of subjective BPPV where when there's debris loaded in a canal that perhaps patients can sense it even when they don't quite get the eye movements. Um, so we have some data to support that notion because again, we know on other trials they did have nystagmus, but they even had symptoms when they didn't exhibit um, nystagmus that we could visibly see. Um, I tend to do maneuvers on patients who, if they have a good history for BPV and they even have an ear pin down for it, I, I do repeated testing, loaded Dix-Hallpike testing several trials. And even if I don't get nystagmus, I would still do a maneuver. I do it less confidently. Like I'm not as sure it's going to help them, but I, I think there's really no downside to it. And I think there are some studies that, a recent study that supported the use of maneuvers, even in subjective BPPV. So I really think there's no harm to it and it's worth trying. Um, but I definitely feel more confident when at some point you see eye movements. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, one result that actually kind of surprised me was that there was no um, there was no statistical uh, statistical difference in the latency mm -hmm. between standard and loaded. I thought for sure by loading the otoconia into the mm -hmm. ambulated portion of the canal that that would induce a longer latency, but that wasn't the case. Yeah, we did too. Well, we thought the same thing. That was one of the goals of the study. Was I thought that doing a loaded Dix Hall Pike would result in longer latencies. In our study, the latencies were longer with loaded Dix-Hall pike testing, but the P level on it with the data we collected was only 0.17. The issue you run into with latency is the it really is variable from patient to patient. And since there's so much variability, it becomes difficult to demonstrate in the study. So in our data, there was a trend towards that, but we couldn't reach statistical significance. And I think our statistician said we'd have to test like I think they estimated like a hundred more patients to perhaps get that to a significant level. So I still think the latency is probably longer with loaded testing, but we couldn't definitively prove it. The basis for latency, for those of you that aren't aware, is um, 
the when debris traversing through the ampulated portion of your canal, there's good evidence that it doesn't create much of a pressure current. So you have to remember the ampulated ending of the canal is about 10 times in diameter as what the capillary size portion of the canal is. So the diameter is 10 times wider and microscopic particles don't create much of a pressure current when they're falling through the ampulated portion of the canal. So that's really the basis for latency. So latency is not you waiting for the particles to move. All right, this is a gravity dependent phenomena. You're waiting for them to enter the narrow portion of the canal and also wall skidding plays a role in that too. If the debris is right against the canal wall, it doesn't create pressure too, which played into the variability with it, I think. So it was just a difficult thing to prove, but I had hoped at the onset of the study, I had hypothesized that it would be longer, but it really, we didn't have the data to definitively support that. And on that note, Jeff, you know, when you are learning about vestibular rehab and BPPV testing, at least I don't remember learning a specific duration, like, okay, you want to keep the patient in the six hall pike position for this long. And then you can confidently say, mm -hmm. if it's not present at this point, it's not going to come. And in your study, you had nystagmus and symptoms present in everyone in under 30 seconds. That's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. I think another teaching point from this is this is 168 Dix Hall Pikes on patients that we know have the disorder. No one had a, um, a latency longer than 25 seconds. That was the longest latency we had. So I think it could perhaps suggest that you can reasonably call a Dix Hall Pike test negative if you've sat there bored for 30 seconds. I think the data supports that 30 seconds is probably an adequate amount of time to then call your Dix Hall Pike negative. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's another thing you can glean from the study data. Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to mention that I think is real common, I see this in students or novice clinicians a lot, is doing the opposite of a loaded Dix Hall Pike. So you have a patient who's either obese or has tight hamstrings and you struggle to get them up in a long sitting position. And a lot of those patients, when you have them in long sitting, I'll change the angle, they like to start their Dix Hall Pike with their head tilted back 20, 30 degrees. And if you look at this and think about it, that would substantially reduce, we would think, the sensitivity of a Dix Hall Pike. So even if you don't want to do a loaded Dix Hall Pike, make sure your patient is upright before you do a standard Dix Hall Pike, because I see a lot of patients that are tilted back um, at the start of their Dix Hall Pike. And if you think about the canal, the debris is even further away from that ampulated portion of the canal. So at a minimum, make sure your patient's upright. So just I just usually take their shoulders and push them forward. Yep. It's a little uncomfortable for the patient, but get them upright. Um, another thing we looked at with our data was, is there BPPV fatigue? I thought, I hypothesized that there wouldn't be fatigue in the loaded group, but there would be in the standard group, but we actually didn't have substantial fatigue in either group, but I think it relates to, in between each test, we waited one minute for debris to settle, and we made sure all patients were all the way up. Because when you set off BPPV, posterior canal BPPV, and you sit the patient up, the debris settles and you get reversal nystagmus, and they want to go backwards. They feel like they're moving in the plane of their contralateral anterior canal. So you're fighting that pulsion. And sometimes then you just leave them there and you do your second test and they tilted themselves back 20 degrees. So that would, 
I think that's another reason we get BPPD fatigue is we as clinicians aren't careful about getting our patients all the way up in between testing. And that's where education comes in, right? So if a patient does not feel well when you bring them back up and they want to throw themselves back, explaining that to them is key, right? Yeah. I mean, you could minimize your patient's symptoms a little bit if you, I guess, bring them up in segments. But I mean, if you want to see it again, you should really get them all the way up, at least upright. I mean, our study would suggest loading them too, but make sure they're at a minimum, at least upright before you do the next test. Jeff, I have another question for you, actually. In the study, it talked about how you brought everyone into the dependent position in in two seconds, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, is that kind of your rule of thumb or was that just for the study? Uh, I, I think that's how I would normally do testing, but we just wanted to be consistent with performing the test. You know, once they started back for their Dick's Hall Pike, the dependent phase, we wanted to make sure it was uniform. So we didn't want to, I, there's studies that demonstrate that speed isn't real critical with Dick's Hall Pike testing because it's a gravity dependent phenomena. But, you know, I didn't want, I wanted there to be consistency with how we did it, but that's, how I do it with patients is I drop them back within two seconds. But again, you don't need to slam your patient back to do a Dick's Hall Pike. Just bring them back steadily. But had patients down within two seconds within the study, we made sure that we did that, whether it was loaded or standard. I think it's amazing how something seemingly so simple can mm -hmm. be really analyzed and broken down into a lot of different components. I mean, this is one test with one condition and one phenomena that we can be talking for over 45 minutes about. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing how something that does seem so simple is so complex. And it kind of hits home the point that people who want to get diagnosed with BPV or need to be diagnosed, need to be diagnosed by somebody who knows what they're doing um, to yeah. make sure they reach an accurate diagnosis and get the help that they need. So it's important more yeah. people read this study and follow up on the evidence-based research and really apply that to how they're practicing. A big help with the study was uh, Michael Teixeira, who's a neurotologist in the Delaware area, did some anatomic work on actually where the cupula for each semicircular canal sits and like how the canal is shaped within the human skull. And again, a big teaching point here is the base of that posterior canal is fairly parallel with the ground for a long stretch. So again, you don't know along that plane where you're leaving where debris is before you test somebody. So um, I just wanted to give some credit to him because he helped me with um, knowing precisely where the cupula is actually for each canal, but for this study, the posterior canal. And the fact that that base of that posterior canal, don't think of it as being um, curvilinear. It's pretty flat at its base. And so the debris can just reside anywhere along that plane. And it, we would think it would have implications on testing for BPPV. Yeah, cool. absolutely. So shall we review a few take homes before we give a few plugs? Sure. Uh, let me say one more thing. I was a little concerned when I did this study about creating cupulolithiasis. Because hmm. if you think about it, you're propelling the debris towards the cupula. And so I was concerned could you, if you abut the debris up against the cupula, create a cupulolithiasis? We, it didn't happen in the study. And from clinical experience, I haven't seen it happen. Um, so that was a concern I had, but I haven't seen that play out with patients. And I think, again, that's why I would stop at 30 degrees and not go crazy with it and go 50 degrees forward with the patient, just 30 degrees to get that debris near the cupula, but not globbed right onto it. Mm -hmm. 
a good point. So take homes. One take home that I had was don't be afraid of repeated testing, especially yes. if your patient can tolerate it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think what um, Danny said earlier, which is, I just learned this through years. Don't be afraid to bring a patient back for a second visit. <laughs> I've just been astounded sometimes that like patients perplex me their first visit nystagmus that's odd and just doesn't make sense, or I can't elicit anything. And just try to be flexible enough with your schedule to be able to see them on a symptomatic day or just a week or 10 days later. But I have found that to be really valuable as repeated assessments with patients. I have a three o'clock slot every day that I just leave open because it always gets filled with somebody who has a recurrence or somebody that's having a bad day with it. And we just plug those patients in at three o'clock every day. So I've just learned to keep an open spot open on my schedule. Um, and it gets taken up every day for that instance. And it's really, really helpful to do repeated assessments. Yeah, we were, we were talking um, off camera a little bit earlier about that and how I we were talking about um, having a symptomatic Dix Hall Pike without any sort of nystagmus at all. And I've just seen that if I don't treat a patient that day, if they're local and I know I have that open slot like you have, um, if they can come in that same day, usually they'll be asymptomatic uh, or uh, um, I'll have no nystagmus during testing, uh, but they'll be a little symptomatic. And a week later, they'll give me a call. They're like, yep, I'm definitely dizzy. We'll bring them in. And sure enough, retesting is showing a pretty strong response. So um, bringing people back in really is helpful to make sure that you can confirm the diagnosis that you're thinking and that the patient's aware of what's going on. Another helpful tip, I think, is for those patients who you can't elicit the nystagmus or response you're looking for in clinic, if you ask them to take out their phone and record what's happening mm -hmm. when you feel Absolutely. symptomatic, so you're ahead of the game a little bit when you do see them again. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. yeah. I get a lot of weird text messages of eyeballs on my phone. So <laughs> they're starting to collect yeah. a little bit. Anyone that steals my phone yeah. is going to be in for a real shock. Some <laughs> um, of the, take, the takeaways that I took from the study was um, I love the fact that we decrease the false negatives um, and increase the sensitivity of the test just with a simple head tilt forward or a body tilt forward. Um, and it kind of hammered home just how important positioning was for testing, not to, you know, just kind of um, on the fly, let it go, but really being mindful and how you're testing to elicit the correct responses and help your patient out as much as possible. Um, and I like also the idea that this increases the symptom duration um, for testing. So anybody that's just getting into vestibular therapy, that's just starting to do positional testing and looking at patients, giving yourself more of a chance of seeing this first time and being more confident in what you're seeing, um, that loaded Dix Hall Pike can be a huge, huge help. Yes, exactly. I was going to say that too, Danny, and especially like for newer clinicians too, it gives you a longer time to observe what's going on. And then the study was also done with fixation present. So if you don't have video goggles either, right. you can be confident knowing that what you're doing, you'll still have like a longer period of time to see it. So yeah, when you were describing yeah, having the patient fixate on something, I was imagining, okay, this is what somebody would do without goggles. If you have the patient looking yep. at your nose during the hall pike. So it's applicable across all levels, even if yeah. you have or don't have goggles. That's why we chose to do that. You telehealth. <laughs> so any um, any other studies in the works? Do you have anything coming up that you are working on? Yeah, um, this should be published soon. Is mm -hmm. We looked at how common reversal phase is with nystagmus. We call it reversal nystagmus in BPPV. And that's going to be in the American Journal of Audiology. Um, and that should be out any time now on how common 
reversal nystagmuses with BPPV because there's sparse reports on that. Um, so we looked at that in a large series of patients. And I got a new one started. Um, I guess I'll talk just real briefly about it is we're looking, we just started this two weeks ago, is an individual's 80 years of age and older. All right. So this is advanced aged adults, not over 60. We're talking 80 and older. So we've had some 95 and 99 year olds in the study is when they come to our department, not our balance center, our otolaryngology department, not for dizziness. They're there for a bloody nose or they're there for a head and neck cancer. Like they're just there for a different reason. We're um, asking them to participate in a study to look to see how commonly they have BPPV. Um, so this is very preliminary data. We've tested seven patients so far and four have had it. So it's pretty, now who knows how that'll hash out as time goes on, but using the loaded Dick's Hall Pike and using video goggles, how often is this present just with very advanced age? And all of them but one only complained of feeling unsteady when they were tested. So I think that's gonna be, we'll see, but I think that's gonna be another feature is that the sensation of vertigo is probably pretty uncommon at that age because of degradation of hair cells, but they're unsteady. Like when you sit yeah. them up after the test, they tilt and they feel, yeah, I feel that way when I get up sometimes. But two of them had said, I've mentioned this to my doctor and they said, well, that's just because you're getting older. Yeah. And it's, again, frustrating because this is, a, again, this is a treatable condition. So we're looking to see in this very, very advanced age population. And if you lose, use a loaded Dick's Hall Pike and do, we're doing repeated testing. So everybody's getting two Dick's Hall Pikes and two roll tests. We're looking for horizontal canal, posterior, posterior canal, canalotiasis, and horizontal canal canalotiasis. How common is it even in individuals that aren't seeking care for dizziness as their chief complaint? Well, that's interesting. There's a prevalence study that looked at the prevalence in different age populations. And I know from the population of the entire U.S. population over 80, they found that 85% of that population specifically had some sort of vestibular dysfunction, whether it was imbalance or vertigo related, it wasn't as specific as BPMBV. But I'd be interested to see how that correlates with uh, BPMBV in that, that patient population. Yeah, the other, the other studies that have looked at BPPV haven't looked at very advanced age subjects. They haven't done loaded Dick's Hall pipe testing. <laughs> Some of those older studies, one that's heavily cited, called their Dick's Hall pipe positive if the patient just said they were dizzy mm. during testing. So I need to be a little careful about that. Um, so we're looking again at with the loaded test, advanced age, repeated testing, like how common is this really? Because I don't think it's well answered yet. Yeah. I don't know the answer, but I think it's it's higher than what we realize, I think. How many people are you looking to have in your study? We don't know yet because <laughs> we're not sure. It, it all will depend on what our hit rate is. So we're going to collect, you know, probably 50 and then have our statistician look at it and see, well, how many more do we need to do to be confident? The higher your positive rate is, the less subjects you need to prove the point. The lower mm -hmm. our rate is, the more subjects we need. So we don't exactly know how many subjects we're going to need yet, but we're just starting to collect data on that. Um, so it's anybody again at our center who is not coming for dizziness. They're not balance center patients. They're patients. I wish they, we could just pull them off the street, but that's an <laughs> IRB issue. Um, so they're patients that are coming into our department to see one of our otolaryngologists that don't want to see dizzy patients. They're seeing them for head and neck cancer, bloody noses, cerumen, like just other EMT related issues that have thyroid issues. 
that have nothing to do with dizziness. So that's the way we can try to collect what we would consider something that resembles a general population. That's exciting. So just anecdotally, I think we can probably all think of patients where we did not suspect BPPV. It was older age and it turned out to be PPV, but they never described it as such. And also this kind of drives home just how important it is to test for BPPV, even if the history doesn't sound like it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my criteria, if a patient shows up and they're over 60 and they have a pulse, that's a reason to do (laughs) positioning tests, I think, on (laughs) subjects. Yes, it's it's very prevalent. I had a patient one time I was seeing for knee pain, and when she got up off the table after I was doing range of motion assessment, she just went, "Sorry, one minute, I I have yeah, this," yeah, and I was like, yeah. "Okay, we're going to test something else." Quick. <laughs> so, yeah, my my wife's a orthopedic physical therapy assistant, and she finds patients for that that exact scenario just reported. She doesn't ignore it; like she pays attention to it and listens and. They're also the same patient. I want you to go get a wedge because they don't want to lie flat to exactly. do their yes. leg exercises. And instead of, you know, just a, she does accommodate them, but she also has questions about it and she finds patients all the time. Mm-hmm. We have 10 clinicians in my current clinic right now, and I'm constantly being pulled. Oh, well, I want Danny to come yeah. take a look at you here for a second because they got up yeah. off the table to go do something. And sure enough, a lot of them yeah. do have BPV. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Jeff, one other thing about your, um, the loaded Dix Hall Pike research. It is an open access article, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's yeah. Been- you, you, the Baselli article I referred to early in this talk, unfortunately, is not free access. But our paper is in an open access journal, which was important to us too. Mm-hmm. We'll link to both of them. So we'll we'll give the link for the open access journal, and then we'll provide the link to the citation for the Baselli um, article as well. And then um, after this, Kelly and I are actually going to film a video of how to do the loaded Dix Hall Pike and some of the main takeaways um, from the article to kind of uh, succinctly put everything nice in a little box for people to kind of watch quickly to get that information out there. And we also have news about a new Bedbridge course, right? Yes. So so this is October 3rd. Any day, I thought it was going to be this weekend, but any day now there's going to be a 10-part course series released by MedBridge that I filmed several months ago, and uh, Danielle helped me with it, so she's involved with it too. Um, So it's like an hour to an hour and a half courses, 10 of them on various vestibular topics, if anybody has interest in those. So they'll be on medbridgeeducation.com, and they should be released anytime uh, here in the near future. So it's about uh, roughly 14 hours of vestibular continuing ed, if anyone is interested in this. And that's more beginner or advanced clinicians? Um, probably geared more for the beginner, but I think even if you're experienced, if you listened, you would glean some little nuggets along the way that would help you. And um, so I would, I, I, it's geared for the beginner, but I still think somebody who's more advanced level can still learn some things from the lectures, I would hope. Well, even just hearing from all the different guests that you had on, like I saw your lineup and it is truly impressive. The different guests that you have at each at the end of your modules and yeah, 
yeah, with that being said too, like anybody listening, whether they're experienced or they're just getting into it, you should definitely check out the other courses that Jeff has up on MedBridge as well as Sue Whitney and Laura Morris and a couple other people mm -hmm. because there's a lot of great information that you can follow along at your own pace. Um, you get CEU credits for it and you can always go back and access anytime you want. So um, we are not sponsored, unfortunately, by MedBridge. We just love it so much that we want to make sure everyone's aware of the great content that they've put out there. Mm -hmm. um, so be sure to check that out. If you go on vestibular.today, we have a tab that will link you directly to Jeff's courses that um, he's got up. We'll add the new link as soon as that's made available. Um, but also be sure to check out some of the other vestibular courses that are out there on MedBridge because they are they're fantastic. They have really great content. Yeah. I spent a lot of time on it. I'm really, really happy with the job they did. I mean, it's a big if you looked at my old courses, which were like seven, eight years ago, it's really a nice upgrade. And it's just the amount of effort they put into enhancing your learning through um, graphics and different pictures that are used throughout it and camera angles. It's the closest thing I think you can be to being at a live course. And with the current time we're stuck in currently, it's, I you know, if you're struggling to find growth opportunities, I, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. They did an excellent job with producing it. Great. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us again. I'm sure we'll have you back because there's always something to learn, even if it makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for joining us. And Kelly, thank you for joining us again, too. I'm yes, sure we'll be back you. on the show soon, too. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, guys. Good seeing you all. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.